So 2 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 1, the Apostle Peter writes this. He says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So far. And before we turn uh, to the sermon, let us... Pray and seek the Lord. O Lord God, Thou art our portion. O Lord, we have said that we would keep Thy words. We entreated Thy favor with our whole heart. Be merciful unto us, O Lord, according to Thy word. We thought on our ways and turned our feet unto Thy testimonies. We made haste and delayed not to keep Thy commandments. The bands of the wicked have robbed us, but we have not forgotten Thy law. At midnight, we will rise to give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous judgments. We are a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy. Teach us thy statutes. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I'm going to be dealing with uh, verses 1 and 2 of uh, chapter 3. And I have three points I'd like to draw out of the passage. They are these three. Number one, apostolic reminders. Number two, stirring reminders. And number three, foundational reminders. So apostolic reminders, stirring reminders, and foundational reminders. So first of all, apostolic reminders. And that is where we, in the beginning, get Peter saying this second epistle Beloved, I now write unto you. And Peter leaves the section in chapter 2 where he's addressed the false teachers and everything the false teachers have done and their judgment. And he moves on to now his readers in chapter 3. And he goes to a wide angle of the situation. And notice he says this second epistle. Um, His first epistle, some of the scholars debate which one it might be, but um, I'm convinced it is 1 Peter and um, that most likely his second one was quickly following it uh, due to the circumstance of these false teachers. But notice as well, it says in the text, he says, the second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. Um, that's not a throwaway word. He's, he's emphasizing that. Uh, Johann Peter Long, right, Lang, writing in the, um, the 18th century, he says this. He says, now, in the near prospect of his death that he talked about in chapter 1, And in the presence of scoffers that are among the church who are denying the coming of the Lord, he says, now, because of that, I write unto you. So he's an old man. He's ready to die. And at the same time, the church is being attacked. And so this is a strong appeal before he dies. He wants to drill in the importance of this letter. Now, he's not minimizing what he wrote in his first letter, obviously, but he's stressing 
what's going on and the teachings that they had given to the people because they were under attack. And shepherds among us and those of you who lead your homes, do not let errors go unaddressed. Perhaps sometimes we're hesitant to speak out even on small sins. We, we overlook them and um, soon small sins can lay root and they can blossom into bigger sins. And so we need to nip them in the bud and be aware of them and speak into them. We must be like Peter who is watching the flock and guard over them. Sometimes uh, we might think, well, it's not that bad. What's going on? A little bit of doctrinal error, whatever. It's, you know, as long as we get the core right. But that's often how things have been smuggled in. Just think about churches in our community that in, and in this nation that once preached the gospel. And now they are hollow shells of truth. And, and in fact, they are landmines from hell. Some of these churches where Christ is no longer preached, where works are sought as a means of achieving righteousness before God. That is, that is a doctrine of demons. I don't think that we're beyond this attack. In fact, if we know our Bibles at all, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, when it talks about the, the, uh, the seed of the woman, what does it say that the devil does? Revelation 12, 17 says this, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You ever think about that? You wake up in the morning and realize we are at war. That's what the Bible says. I am at war because the devil is making war against the church. Notice as well, Peter says the second epistle, Beloved, I write unto you. It's uh, an interesting word given the context of what's going on. Now in Greco-Roman culture, the word beloved was always applied to children to your, those nearest and dearest to you. And so when the church uses that term, it obviously is rich with the idea of a familial or family relationship of kin. We are all members, the Apostle Paul says, of the household of God. What's interesting, I was looking at the word agapetos, beloved, and there's 62 uses in the Bible, in the New Testament of agapetos. Second Peter is second highest in the use of that word beloved. And in Second Peter, this last chapter has all of them but one. And the only other one is when he quotes on the Mount of Transfiguration in verse 17 of chapter 1. This is my beloved son. All of the rest are in the end of this letter. And like I said, outside of the book of Romans, which has more, which is a big book, Second Peter is full of exhortations of familial relationship of love. That's quite striking. And so Peter, at the end of his life, the apostle that was so rash and brash sometimes, he now addresses and he implores his readers, separating them from the heretics, right? They're false teachers. They're th they are scoffing it. But you, beloved, those so near to me, he says. Um, he, and he speaks to them. What a deep love should abound in those of us who are of the household of faith, where we are maybe prone to scold, let us graciously exhort, where you might sneer at somebody, oh, look at them. Let us instead stoop to be alongside of them. It's easy to be pompous and proud, isn't it? 
to look over someone who's falling into the ways of sins or who doesn't see certain doctrinal things when we should affectionately pray and humbly plead with them. You know, what privileges are found in that word, beloved? What mercy God has shown us that he would draw miserable wretches like you and me into the household of faith, where once you and I were heirs of hell. In Christ, we are crowned with heaven's riches and heaven's inheritance. That's what Peter says in his first epistle to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled which fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. That's what we have. Oh, how great then is the work of Christ in whose spirit outcasts are adopted into that household and that Christ, the eternal son, would would not be ashamed of us. Can you imagine coming into heaven and the son doesn't just say, well, you know, I, I, I had to do something for them. No, that's not how we enter into heaven's gates when we go there. Instead, the Bible says in Hebrews 2.11, it says, He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy, na- my, thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And so there's so much mercy wrapped up in that word, beloved. Beloved, I write unto you. Which brings me to the second point, stirring reminders, where he says, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Notice it says, in both which. Um, And if you look at your Bible, the word both is in italics. It's not in the Greek. So why did they add both which? It's because the word which is plural. So it is referring to two or, or at least more than one. And so the expositors are right to add the word both because it's referring to both his first and his second letter. In both letters, the Apostle Peter has the same main goal. And that goal is to bring to remembrance important truths, truths that they brought with the gospel. When they preached the gospel, they also taught the traditions that came with that gospel. Now, I think that's instructive. Because it means that when we bring the gospel to the world, to our children, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers, it must be accompanied with the teachings of Christ, the discipling that accompanies it. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said in the Great Commission, right? When he says, go ye therefore, teach all nations, mathetes, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, And of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then he says it in a different word. He says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And so Jesus commissions the church to not just go out like our modern world so often, modern church often says, oh, I got decisions. I'll never forget. Um, sometimes after VBS camps, people say, well, you got 30 decisions for Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Because Jesus isn't just about somebody that raises the aisle and walks, you know, walks up front. No, he's about disciples, followers, people who are transformed in heart and transformed in life. And so Peter says, I stir up by way of remembrance. He says these embers of truths that we brought with the gospel need to be stirred up in these letters. And that's what all the apostles are doing. They're, they're blowing in to the truth so they will flame up again and remind them of that. Um, we saw this word to stir 
in the beginning of this letter as well. If you remember in uh, chapter 1, look at verse 13, where Peter says the same thing. He says, Yea, I think it is meet or fitting, as long as I am in this tabernacle, as long as he's alive, to stir up by putting you in remembrance. It's the same word, to stir up. And we saw then that the word to stir up is the idea of when a sea gets stirred up and agitated or it's the same word that's used of joseph when the angel shakes him awake and stirs him up in matthew 1 or jesus when he's on the storm in on in the boat on the storm in the sea of galilee and the disciples stir him awake and i think the reason that peter uses this word is very instructive because it means we are given to falling asleep aren't we spiritual lethargy is very easy to fall into. Perhaps that's happened to you this past week. You, you started to slumber in holiness. You started to dwindle your attention off of the things of Christ and slowly entertaining sinful thoughts and sinful attitudes. Maybe, maybe words flopped out of your mouth because you weren't on your guard. The psalmist says, Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. He prays this. And Peter is stirring up, reminding the church of these important things. What are the sins that are getting a beachhead in your heart? Maybe it's discontentedness. Maybe it's unthankfulness. An entitled generation that we are. We think we deserve all these things. And young people, I think... We are given, young people in particular, are given so much nowadays that the attitude of entitlement creeps in. What about anger? I know I can catch myself justifying unrighteous anger at times. Well, if they hadn't have done that. Blaming them on my sin. Spiritual lethargy creeps in. Perhaps you're not receptive as you ought to be, to the Lord's chastisements, his reproof. The prophet Habakkuk says this, he says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower, looking up, right, on a watch, watching for, and he says this, I will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. He was alert and watching for the Lord's chastisements to change. Habakkuk 2.1. And so Peter says this stirring is done by way of reminder. That's really interesting. He's not saying, I'm going to give you novel truths you've never seen before. No, instead he's giving them the same truths they were aware of, but fanning them into flame. And so by reminder, that is the means of stirring up. We don't need to stir one another up with novelty, not with gimmicks, not with flashy worship bands, not with great swelling words like the false teachers did we saw in chapter 2, but by faithfully teaching and preaching and proclaiming the word of God. In our homes, categorize your children. In your homes, read the word of God regularly. In your homes, encourage devotions. In the church, Come to the attending. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. And what does this mean? This means intentionality, doesn't it? It means you plan for these things. 
An army will perform intentional drills, even when they're not in combat, to always be prepared for combat. Intentionality means forethought. It means an awareness of your weaknesses. Have you ever taken an inventory of your weaknesses? And being aware of them, making plans to fight against them. Do you come prepared to Bible study? Do you come prepared to church? Or do you come slumbering because this is something out of duty you do? Stirring up by way of reminder also means knowing the urgency of the matter. When you have an important appointment, you either write it on your phone or you put reminders on your, write it on the calendar or put reminders on your phone that it will buzz, right, and give you a reminder sometimes a week ahead and maybe even like an hour ahead to, to remind you of this thing. And, and when somebody else, maybe your spouse or one of your children, reminds you of an important appointment, you thank them for it. You say, oh, thanks, yeah, that's right. That is really important. important. I don't want to forget it. The more urgent the matter, the less prone we will be to brush aside the reminders. And think, well, I already know that. And instead, we'll be thankful for them. Your people, you and I have an appointment with God Almighty. And that is why reminders need to be stirred up also by being informed. You can only remind people of what you already know. So how are we informing ourselves? What are we doing to be prepared to remind one another of essential truths? So notice Peter says in the text to stir up your pure minds. Kind of a unique word there. The word pure is only used twice in the New Testament. It means something that is unmixed and untarnished in the light of the sun. It's the only other place it's found is in Philippians 1.10 where it says that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere, same word, and without offense till the day of Christ. Notice Paul also takes this truth and ties it to the last day, till the day of Christ. And notice Peter says that it would stir up your pure minds to stir up a way of thinking that has not yet been contaminated by the false teachers. He's separating them from the false teachers. He says, no, you're pure minds, not them, not them. It is only the mind of believers that can be considered pure minds. And only those minds can actually be stirred up and awakened again afresh to truth. And they will love that truth. It is not Christianity to simply have truths of God here in your head. If that's the Christianity you know, just head knowledge, you don't know Christ. It's not about recycling answers that your parents taught you. You have to be born again. You have to have a heart that is sincere for God, changed by the Spirit of Almighty God, warm to His ways. Pure minds are transformed then and receptive to the truths of God. And that is why Jesus would say to Pilate, he says, Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Some of you might be here this morning and you've heard it here. But that's the end of it. 
And so we have to plead for one another that the Spirit would awaken eyes and unstop ears. Pure minds, when confronted with sin, those minds hate the impurity that is still within, and they will be drawn to confessing their sins. Pure minds will be reminded of God's holiness, and because of the the beauty of God's holiness, will be drawn to know more of God. Do you not think that the minds of the greatest of saints are still in need of such refreshing, such truths? Do you think men like Calvin and Knox and Spurgeon would shun reminders? Absolutely not. The Puritan uh, William Burkett, who was the forerunner of uh, Matthew Henry, he wrote this. He says, we are slow to learn what we should do and more slow to do what we have learned. Isn't that the case? Isn't that the case? Here's a contrast. Pure minds will increasingly know the vileness of their sins. That's quite something. They will increasingly know the vileness of their sins, and yet they will be counted pure, sincere, genuine in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will know how miserably weak we are. And that is why when we are stirred up at church, when we come here this morning, if our hearts are stirred and warmed to the gospel, it is because we have been reminded of the preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The preciousness of it is finished at Calvary. And so how great then it is for each one of us to remind each other of the simple truths, yet so profound truths of the gospel. Because you go a week and you have so much sin, so much weakness. We fail in so many ways. And to remind one another of the pureness of the Lord Jesus Christ and his precious blood, that warms hearts towards him. I love to be reminded of the purity of the doctrine of justification by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. One of the favorite words that I I heard when I was a young believer was the word alone, alone in Jesus Christ. The Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, it says this, for by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Alone in Christ, alone in him I am found. Oh, to be reminded of that, that is the joy of the believer. Does that warm your heart this morning to meditate afresh on Jesus Christ, to be reminded of him? That brings me to the third point, foundational reminders. Because Peter's particular goal in these stirrings are seen in verse 2, where he says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. In the twin epistle, and we've noted it before, the book of Jude, which is so similar to Second Peter, there it says it somewhat similarly. Listen to this and, and just compare it to verse 2 here in Second Peter. It says this, Jude 17, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice the difference? It sounds fairly similar. Words spoken before, remember, all that stuff. The apostles are brought up, but which group is missing? Prophets. The prophets, right? The prophets are not mentioned. We've got to remember that unlike the book of Jude, 
Peter is answering the challenge from these false teachers back in chapter 1 that says the apostles themselves were following cunningly devised fables. Verse 16, and we saw then in verses 17 through 21 that Peter tied together the Old Testament kingdom prophecies, the prophetic word, with the apostolic word, and he said they speak as one. And he especially cemented that in with the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus' radiance was seen for a moment. His glorious radiance and his radiance that that testified that one day he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so Peter is dealing with the, the challenge of Old Testament prophecies about the king being authenticated in the apostolic message. And remember how Peter says in this second epistle, he is writing of this thing. Um, it's because actually in his first epistle, he also spoke of the same thing. In verse 1, just looking back at the word pure minds, that word minds is fairly rare. And in chapter 1 of First Peter, he uses the exact same word. Now listen how he uses it there. It's chapter 1, verse 13. He says, wherefore... Gird up the loins of your mind. There's that same word, dianoia. Be sober and hope to the end, the final day, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so in 1 Peter, he says, let your minds be sharp until that day. 2 Peter, until that day. The prophet spoke of that day. Everything centers on the glorious day of Christ's return. And what's striking is this is not new for Peter because after Jesus rose from the dead and he commissioned his apostles in Acts chapter 3, the Acts of the Apostles, Peter says this to the Jews. He says, And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the time of the restitution of all things. Again that day, which God hath spoken, and here's the tie-in, by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the day the world began. And so in Peter's mind, the apostolic message runs in continuation with the prophetic message. And it was the false teacher's that wanted to sever the apostles as following something made up so that he could discount, they could discount the message and do whatever they wanted to do. Do you notice the solidarity that is so important between the Testaments, how we read the Bible? We can't separate the canon and take only the new and discard the old. Turn with me, please, to Joel chapter 3. This is just a strong example of how the prophets spoke of the Lord's coming. Joel chapter 3. Joel 3 starting at verse 9. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. 
for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. You see little markers there of the book of Revelation. And then he goes on, put ye in the sickle. Think of Revelation, the harvest. For the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. The wickedness of man reaching the final day. Multitude, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. When I was a young kid, one of the studies my uh, school, Christian school made me do, was a study on the Old Testament prophets, the day of the Lord. That is what is being talked about here. And look what it says. The sun and the moon shall be darkened and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth will shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. It is one of the many prophecies about the day of the Lord, the day of his judgment, judgment on the nations, and he's drawing his people to himself. How terrifying that day will be for the unrepentant. And if you're here among us this morning, and you have not repented and bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, claimed him as your only Savior, that day will be terrifying for you. At the same time, for the believer, we, want, we long for that day. We look forward to that day of his return, that we may marvel at the glory of Jesus Christ. How quickly we lose sight of that, and the embers start to dwindle in our thinking about the day of the Lord's return. We go about our tasks, we... we clean our kitchens, we clean our homes, we work in our businesses, we, we take care of our children so quickly with a short-minded focus. How often don't we quickly revolve our marriages and our parenting around temporary success? Oh, look at little Johnny, he's growing up so well, and look at him grow, and we don't talk about his heart, the things that matter the most. How easily we can panic about the state of our house when people are coming over, or what am I wearing, what am I looking like, and we do not look about the inner heart, the inner beauty, what matters most. The Lord is most interested in a heart that is pure and set upon the things of God. Perhaps for you it's the worries of health. Maybe it's the difficulties at your job, you have a difficult co-worker. Perhaps it's the, the broken vehicle and the strain it's put on your finances. You don't know how to fix that. And all these things cloud over your view of the eternal. And you, you panic and you worry and you lose sight of how it all fits in the majestic, sovereign purposes of God hastening to the last day. The uh, Puritan Richard Baxter's ministry was instrumental in transforming a vile town of Kidderminster, Kidderminster in England. And for 20 years, he ministered there and brought great transformation to the town. After that, he would suffer many years in prison under uh, his persecutors for his faith. But when he got out, 
He wrote this. In my younger years, my main concern was my actual failings. But now I'm much more troubled about my lack of a greater love to God and not thinking enough about and longing for the life to come with God in heaven. He would tell those that would visit him as he was nighing death's door, he said this, Be mindful of the shortness of time, the greatness of God, and the riches of the grace of Christ. It's good counsel. Be mindful, reminding them, reminding them. And so Peter goes on and he ties in this prophetic word with the commandment of the us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Look at the shift in words. Verse 2, that you were mindful of the words which were spoken before. But he doesn't say that about the apostles. The words spoken before, which makes sense, because the apostles are instead sent out to speak the words of him who has now come. Because he has come, they are commissioned to go out and to command people to repentance and obedience to the gospel. The words spoken before by the apostles were about the final day of the Lord. The commandments are the marching orders how we must live as we anticipate that final day, the judge who is coming. But the two are inseparable. And the false teachers knew that all too well. They knew that if you discard the judgment, the day of the Lord, you discard the judge of the day of the Lord. And so they simply, as we saw in chapter 2, look at the end of verse 21, we saw them rejecting or turning from the holy commandments. Same words, the commandment. Notice as well, it's in the singular. In chapter 3, verse 2, and in chapter 2, verse 21, it's the same commandment, the singular. And we saw then that refers to the, the sacred, delivered tradition of the apostles, the gospel and the lifestyle that accompanied that Gospel. Notice as well it says, and this is really interesting, he says, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would he say that? Why would he put it, why wouldn't he just say in the commandment of the apostles, of us? What's he doing? He's separating himself from the false teachers. They were trying to infect the church. They were trying to to throw water, as it were, on the coals and kill the fire. And so he's saying, no, remember the commandment of us, the unique apostolic word. In fact, later, just like he did with the transfiguration where he links the prophetic word and the apostolic word, he does it again at the end of this letter. Turn to chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, and look what he says there. Notice there it says, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. Here's the key. As they do also the 
other scriptures unto their own destruction. The apostle Peter uses the word graphe, scriptures, and ties together what Paul the apostle wrote and applies Old Testament categories of authentic truth, the scriptures. And so Peter weaves together again many times in this letter the authenticity of the prophetic and the apostolic word as being one. This means read your Bible as a whole. Look for one message. For though many mouths spoke, it speaks but with one voice. The Puritan John Trapp says this, run to this armory, the entire scriptures, the prophetic and the apostolic word for weapons against seducers. For every battle you have that we have against sin, the flesh, and the devil, the word of God has the choicest weapons for that battle. Don't go to another armory like the teachers would have you do. Run to the word. Run to the word for everything. With the guilt of sins that you have committed, lay hold of the power of justification in Christ's blood to slay the onslaught of despair. The apostolic teaching there is, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 When you are tried by lust, grasp firmly to the higher call we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle there says this, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.14 Are you tempted to jealousy? Maybe jealousy of the way somebody has their home or or envy. Perhaps you're given to feelings of comparison to someone else. Always trying to measure up to them, to what they have. No, no, no. Clasp in that armory then to the great riches that are yours in Christ Jesus. Why would we value idols that will leave you impoverished and empty and broken and destroy you? The apostolic word there is... For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Oh, the armory there has its choicest weapon. Perhaps you're seeking the approval of a friend or of a co-worker and you're doing anything to win their affection, to win their heart. Again, the armory of Scripture is clear. The apostolic word is clear. The Apostle Paul, Galatians 1.10 says this, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Oh, slay those thoughts with the truths of Scripture. Pray that the Spirit would open your hearts to the beauty of Christ who illumines every page of the Bible. Don't just read this as a textbook. Don't read this as an interesting history book of religion or something that these churches hold to. Lay hold of it by faith, looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. And above all things, as we're so prone to do, Do not seek to add your puny ideas to the truths of God. Lay hold then of that great weapon where it says in Proverbs 19.21, There are many devices 
in man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Yesterday I spoke with someone who was despairing with anxiety. And I told him to run to Scripture, to run to Philippians. Be careful for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, make your, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep, shall protect your hearts and minds. Counsel one another with the word. Don't come with your ideas. We're so used to doing that. And the world wants to feed that more. Slay those thoughts with the word of God. Be confident in Scripture. It might not be convenient in the moment, but it is truth. Truth you must hold on to. Oh, what vigor this calls us to, to be anxious, to grow in the Word. Why would a soldier lay down arms when he knows the battle is won? We don't do that. Do you think that the Allied soldiers, after gaining Normandy Beach, said, whew, we won that battle, and went back into the sea? No, no, no. They pressed on. They fought harder. They kept digging in until the enemy fell. They went forward. Victory was in their sights. How much more for the Christian? Because Christ has won. We press on in a sure hope, in a definite victory, in a realized Savior. But press on in the Word. Know the Word. Battle in season and out of season with the Word as your anchor. And so notice Peter says emphatically of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior, his favorite title here for Jesus. Tying this together with the prophetic word is quite something because if you know your Old Testament, the term God, Lord and Savior, especially Savior, only applies in the prophetic word to one Isaiah 43, 3, For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Thou shalt know that I am the Lord thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. Hosea 13.4 How you and I are confronted in the gospel with the sheer majesty of our Savior because our Savior is God. That is the one we serve. He is the God of the Old Testament. He is the God of the New Testament. The triune God we worship that is our Savior. He is the Holy One. There is none besides him. And the apostles are mere spokesmen. But Jesus is the source of their utterances. Today, you cannot leave without his words echoing somehow in your heart. He will do something. The apostle Paul says we are the message of life unto life and death unto death. Who is sufficient for these things. The word of God is a two-edged sword. It slays and it makes alive. That is the power of the word this morning. How will you respond to the word? Perhaps 
You affirm all this. You know Jesus, but you're weary of the struggles in life. Perhaps you're depressed or downcast because of the state of the world, the state of your family, the state of your own heart. When you fall, when you worry, when you despair, when you begin to weep in brokenness, when you are afraid, fly to Jesus Christ with hope and expectation. Oh, fly to him a thousand times. And if you said, well, I've done it again, fly to him again. Again, run to Jesus. Don't despair. He's a great savior. He's the only one that knows your frailty more than you even know your own frailty. Joel Beakey says this. He said, when my son was a small boy, I was going to punish him once for a severely, for, severely for a moral, serious moral infraction. But before I could do that, He ran to me as soon as he saw me, hugged me, and with tears dripping down my neck, pleaded for my forgiveness. That is how we should run to God, safe in the arms of a father who loves us. And Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I shall in no wise cast out. Have you come to him? Have you run to him? The great God of salvation. Oh, how the embers of hope and holiness and salvation in Jesus Christ need to be stirred up, dear church. Do not abandon that simple gospel. Salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is at one level simple. A child can understand it. At another level, it is so profound that the greatest theologians cannot plumb the depths of that salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the holy commandment delivered unto us. Repent and be ye saved, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. O God, I pray for anyone here who has heard it a thousand times but has never yielded to you. Oh God, we know that the surgery can only be done by the Holy Spirit. We know that there must be a circumcision made without hands. And we pray, Lord, that you would break hearts of stone and implant them with hearts of life. And I pray, Lord, for your church, that your church would speak of a great Savior. Lord, that we would never um, grow tired of that precious gospel and speak much of Christ, justification by faith in him alone. In his name we pray. Amen.